the row over Scotland's proposed deposit bottle scheme a fuss about nothing or actually indicative of something deeper, which is a debate about whether Scotland as a country is big enough to sustain any separate commercial developments? And if that uh, debate is rumbling under, will somebody please answer it fast? Uh, we look also at the arguments over whether or not there should be a de facto referendum, whether that should be a general election, a, a new Holyrood election or what, and speculate that John Curtis might be absolutely right when he says none of this will switch Scottish voters onto independence. Less process and more of the case for independence, please. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast. And you know, Leslie and I are two people of a certain generation. Well, yeah, I'm older than Leslie, to be perfectly frank. That's a reveal because some people know it was my 71st birthday uh, last week. But yes, I know, remarkably spry. Spry is a word that you actually use for people who are old, who are marginally more active and limber than, than, than <laughs> others. But spry, yes, spry, Joyce. But yes, I'm old enough to remember when uh, you actually got deposits on bottles, yeah, that you took the bottle back to the shop and they gave you some money back on it. And that, you know, back in the old days seemed to work perfectly well with no, you know, waves of disaster approaching retailers and lemonade manufacturers going out of business. However, however, according to the Everyone. industry... Yes, yes, it's a, it's is an absolute shocker. The world is coming to an end. We have a plagues of locusts. We'll have everything happening because we're introducing in Scotland, finally, after years of trailing it, a deposit return scheme. And that is, to be perfectly frank, this week's ferry scandal. Yeah, in fact, Brian Wilson, um, not surfs up, but um, the other Brian Wilson um, oh, right, <laughs> has written yeah. a piece with exactly that, uh, you know, the c comparison that this is actually even more of a scandal in the ferries. Oh, and geez. it's, you know, we've both sat for the last hour sifting through everything to do with yes. returns. And actually, I had in the back of my mind, I thought I've done this before. Uh, which is uh, when you've written as many columns, you know, that is true. But I actually chaired a conference on this. I discovered when I peered into the laptop in 2015 and then wrote a column for the Scotsman about this because that very day, Bars had Bars Iron Brew had ended 110 years of cash for empty bottles because curbside collections had proved so yes. successful. So they had basically and they had an argument about uh, the amount of water they were using in the bottle washing process, the energy, blah, blah, blah. So actually back then, the beginnings of the argument were just, you know, either uh, kind of, you know, you recycle bottles in bottle banks or there's a, the return idea. Mm. Actually, most environmentalists were saying, you know, to reach the targets we, we need, you need both. Yes. You need a lot. And actually, that is generally speaking what happens in countries like Sweden that are the utter recyclers. You definitely have this return to retail thing where if you're clanking around in any of these countries, uh, you, you know, you take your stuff right back to. And then the point is very small stores in cities. So they're much less supermarketized. So people mm -hmm. are generally buying and getting stuff out of small stores, which must 
the law requires them to take back anything that they've sold. So there isn't a kind of huge clank to the, you know, anywhere. You're just going back yeah. to the wee shop in a city that you use all the time, basically, not cars to get to big, you know, yeah. centralised recycling points. And the the other thing is that, um, amazingly, these small countries, which have the same population as Scotland, um, <laughs> astonishingly manage their own, you know, return schemes Although, having had a bit of a look at it, what they seem to have started with particularly was not glass bottles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what their returns are mostly about is actually recycling plastic bottles and, and aluminium tin. And the amount that's been recycled in some places is completely gobsmacking, yeah. you know, 380 million tonnes of aluminium in one year in Sweden or something. But as a so there seems to be a bit of a question being raised about about the glass bottles yeah. and then the supplement that essentially gets placed on it because you've essentially put your deposit on it already and you're just claiming it back when you go back in with the bottle. Um, and it, um, it's very hard to know how you adjudicate all of this, because qu quite apart from anything else, I start thinking to myself, how have we administered a different scheme to do with minimum alcohol pricing here? Yes, exactly. I, I can be quite stupid, really seriously stupid about money and systems to do with money sometimes because I just don't see the obvious thing. But I think with the, the glass bottles, you've looked at this maybe more. Mm. They're, they're meant to have a barcode on them, um, which would which would then mean you'd have to put a barcode on stuff that's heading for Scotland and not for anywhere yeah. else. And yeah. that seems to be the core of what people are objecting about, is it? Yeah, well, it seems to be because yeah, that that was the the, the whole point that uh, Jimmy Delac was making when when I eventually dug down into what the Scottish Independent Brewers Association were saying about it was the fact that they were going to have to operate two different systems based upon the fact that they were going to have to specially produce bottles for Scotland, you know, with special labelling. Because presumably the thing about the minimum alcohol pricing is that you don't have to do anything different to the bottle. No. It's no. just that the retailer yes, the then has to hike yeah. it up. So that's not your yeah. problem. You just supply the same bottle and then it's as it gets displayed, it's different. Yeah, but, but that, that was the whole point about the minimal alcohol pricing thing was actually did establish that whole basis of that differentiation between Scotland and England in terms in terms of the legislative competence of the, the governments and where they were actually going. Because what they've actually done, and Fergus Ewing was suggesting, is we go along with the UK version, which is you do not include glass. But, I mean, I took a look at it. I mean, in Germany, they include glass, you know, and they, they're getting... Look, looks like almost a hundred percent recycling of plastic, glass, and aluminium, you know, and they 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 brought that in in two thousand and three. Estonia, uh, bottom of the league, and they do everything. That's eighty three percent. And the other thing about it is, it tends to happen really, really quickly. When Lithuania introduced it in year one in twenty sixteen, there's a pattern developing here that yes, we are we are way behind. Seventy four percent success rate in recycling all packaging up to 92 percent by 2018 and the, the complete they were complaining about the complexity of it. it was going to be a complex system that whole thing about the the labeling did not come up when delat was claiming it was going to potentially double the cost uh, to small independent uh, brewers of what they're going to produce and he suggested that the bigger people could actually cope with it more i was disappointed that martin geisler I didn't actually press him and say, well, you've claimed it's going to be double, you know, but prove it, you know, why is it going to be double? That 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 was never asked. 
But see the complexity, 20p on each item, return to the shop, you place in a reverse vending machine, or you return to a registered collection point. And that's the way it operates again in small countries as well, like Estonia. You know, it it doesn't seem to me overly complex to me. But do they have this barcode thing on the glass? I didn't check else? that. I See, like, I've been that looking out. for that and I cannot find that level of detail. Right. I mean, it, it seems it seems from just some of the complaints that that's the that's the killer on the glass yeah. is having to actually produce have a different production line simply yeah. to put the barcode on. I mean, it's, I don't know. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if there's many people listening who are specialist enough to know whether or mm. not having to put a barcode on a certain number of things and then make sure that that is a separate is kept separately and then handled separately is a huge extra. You can kind of see how it could you mm. know, be a difficulty. And I don't know whether there's a way to do it without having the barcodes, you know, yeah. who knows. But what's what's really sort of, you know, what's powerful about this, because people might think, why do we even, you know, People have to sign up by the end of the month, basically, the yeah. producers, and they have to decide whether or not all this what perceived awkwardness is essentially going to put them out of business in Scotland or not, and thus whether they should bother signing up. You kind of imagine they could sign up. If it all goes pear-shaped, they can then decide they're just not going to, you know, they're not going to supply here. Mm. Um, so, But still, um, I guess they've got a leverage point at the moment. They've obviously got the attention of all the media. Yeah. Um, when you look a little bit back in stories, you see that this has been rumbling around since I wrote a column for the Scotsman about it in 2015, <laughs> based on <laughs> Barr's decision to sort of withdraw from, you know, the the old the old ways. Um, so it's been kind of rumbling on for an incredibly long length of time. And I remember when I was chairing this conference about it ages ago in Stirling. Um, it's all very well for the British government to say, oh yes, we've got one coming along in 2025. When this started being discussed, they didn't. Yes. They were not even remotely interested. And you've got to say, you know, their their track record of sort of being consistently interested in anything that helps the environment. Let's just remember, these are the same guys who are currently putting legislation through Parliament that basically essentially disapplies any of the regulations mm-hmm. about uh, releasing sewage into water from the major water companies in England. Yeah. So, you know, they're not they're not exactly in the vanguard of environmental protection. And the Scots just thought, you know, something we will be waiting forever for these guys. So we're basically going to get on with this. And because also it's a Scottish competence. So it's not a thing yes. of, you know, let's let's I mean, God almighty, you get hung if you know, you get damned both ways on this one, because if you're you're responsible for questions of the environment, which Scotland is, then it behoves you to get into your arse into gear and get something moving. Now, the Welsh, apparently, of course, this has got the classic now sting kind of, mm. you know, Alistair Jack's sting on it uh, because he's come in or in his lugubrious sort of, you know, hush puppy manner saying, you know, he implores the Scottish government to think again. Just think, wouldn't it be more sensible if we just had a, a you know, pan UK system? After exactly. all, the Welsh apparently look like they've looked at it and thought this ain't worth a can get it. And we'll just wait till the English basically get their act together. You would have to say that with a much larger, you know, land border and constant moving in and out of England and Wales, you know, across Mm -hmm. the Severn Bridge and so on and up at the top, you know, there's much, much more cross movement into between Wales and England. You could kind of see that that would be a difficulty for them. But 
Um, but that's why we are where we are, that the Scottish government took their, their responsibility seriously, that, you know, pretty much the whole country wants to tackle stuff to do with littering and and kind of the, the just the fast food culture and all the you know, you know kind of rubbish that we've got around the place and that we need to move towards looking at packaging as a resource, not as just sort of waste yeah. to be got rid of. All of that is perfectly true. Um, I, I just don't know on the details enough of whether or not the killer blow is the glass, yeah. you know, that, that kind of barcode thing. But yeah. and it's it's hard to know. But the thing is this. This is allowing Alistair Jack and the Tories and the British government and unionists to basically make the case that Scotland is too small a marketplace to yeah. have its own bespoke yeah. arrangements. And that's where this thing is a bit of a killer. And of course, it's not being conducted, um, the discussions. And it was a very bad move by Lorna Slater and all exactly. those involved to not appear on uh, the Sunday show where Martin Geisler opened the, the lid on this. I was going to say the can, but my God, it's amazing how these <laughs> things get in. But anyway, um, to sort of really investigate this, you know, you've got to pitch up and, and have your say, which she did this morning on Good Morning Scotland. Good. Um, but uh so it's being conducted sort of completely, which is absolutely fair enough. You know, as, as, as it stands, it is a technical proposal to try and sort environmental problems out. It's also a microcosm of the independence debate, because yep. if you can't actually manage a blinking bottle return scheme in your own country, which is the same size as all the other small countries that have got their own bespoke bottle return schemes, then how the hell can you ever become independent? is the implication and that's why it's really important that this one is answered properly because it's putting all sorts of and this is its beauty for unionist arg uh, arguments it's putting all sorts of subliminal doubts in there about not being able to handle things in a commercial way at a scottish level yeah yeah, precisely. I mean, because the, the, it allowed the, the, the non-appearance and they left it up to the very articulate Lorna Young to actually go on and and, and defend the position from a, from a, just an environmental activist. You know, then it ought to have been somebody from the Scottish government who went on there to actually defend it and leaving the field open for uh, your friend and mine, Fergus Ewing. That, that, I mean, someone whose vision of an independent Scotland doesn't match mine at all to, to make claims that were that, that went unchallenged. Um, and I find it interesting that Fergus Ewing actually cited the fact, you know, this is actually going to uh, make the, the carbon footprint even bigger, you know, with people, you know, having to go to these centralised uh, centres to return the bottles. You know, I'm thinking of the environment. And I mean, it reflected back on the way that the Scottish wind, whiskey industry, uh, under the minimum alcohol pricing thing, turned around and said, you know, what the Scottish government ought to be doing, you know, if... Uh, a drink is a, a problem for people in poverty. They ought to be solving poverty, which is the first time I think the Scottish whiskey industry has actually uh, taken a, a left of centre stance on anything purely to suit their own means. And but you're yet, absolutely, and yet yeah. there is a point in this because um, it, it is true, as far as I can see, that several councils, I mean, we don't even need yeah. to go into how cash strapped yeah. these guys are. They're closing swimming pools, for goodness sake. Um, you know, they're looking at, OK, if you have uh, bottles now supposedly going back to uh, retailers, why do we do curbside bottle collections? Yeah. yeah. And so that will leave people exactly as the little village I live in in North Fife has always been, which is you have to do it yesterday. You have to collect and separate everything mm -hmm. in a shed and then take it yourself yes. to uh, to get rid of it. And that is it's crazy. You know, so it, it is crazy if somehow we end up with perfectly 
good, uh, you know, curbside collections disappearing. And as as everybody said, I'm just reading this from 2015. This either or idea is completely not the way anybody else works. You know that they do curbside collections in most of the Nordic countries and they do bottle return. But, you know, this is where you look again at the way we are. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we are now so cash strapped because of the way this country has been run that you're left with decisions when you come to something that's trying to shift the the game on um you're left with having to make a choice between essentially the devil and the deep blue sea so you're going to have to have one thing or t'other because councils will find it very difficult to justify why they're continuing to pick up bottles why they're continuing to you know so this is rambling off the point but you know run buses that are nearly empty all the Mm. time because they don't run them regularly enough for people to use them i mean you get to a point where services don't become viable because the bulk of everyone else has shifted out to something else. So that is, a, you know, there's a definitely there is something there. And that's why it would have to be the case that you 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 get the little machines in lots of small places. The worry that those small co- companies have, and again, I'm reading this from 2015, is the worry is for small corner shops is that they will get all the returns from things bought in supermarkets. Yeah. And they haven't got space to store them. So there's, you know, there's definitely worries in all of this. I don't think we've heard the half of how that gets resolved. There's been blinking Mm. five years of planning and all of this. Yes. You'd kind of imagine that it has been gone through. Yeah, because, yeah, they did visit Estonia in 2018, I found out, to actually find out how the Estonian system worked. I mean, and that was the claim that that, that you made that Lorna Slater had not sought expert advice from anywhere else, you know. Well, whether she sought her, I mean, the thing is, having listened to her this morning, she didn't exactly come out with her. This is how they do it in Estonia. This is how they do it in Germany. This mm-hmm. is exactly how they do it in Sweden. That's what I would have been coming right out yeah. with. But then, you know, that's <laughs> in my life making those kind of comparisons in great tedious detail, you know, yeah. um, because that's your that's your strongest suit. If this works, I mean, this is what I don't understand. It's not being asked outright, but it's being suggested in every question. Scotland is too small to do this mm. yeah and you know what what you need to have back at that is okay small i'll give you small and then yeah. come through your list a very detailed list of how this works but anyway uh, there will be people listening here who don't just be throwing things at <laughs> bottles well, whatever this is <laughs> bottles around because they know some of this so please you know do do get in touch yeah. you can always contact me at hello at leslie um if you are the bottle expert who can actually <laughs> <laughs> give yeah. some clarity as to whether or not bottles are just the bridge too far. And perhaps this scheme would have been easier if it had brought, you know, other aspects of, of recycling in first or whether this kind of idea of needing the barcode is a terrible clincher, you, whatever, do, do get in touch. Mm. But in the meantime, the trouble is that this adds to a number of things that don't look like they've been executed yeah. particularly well. And that's, again, what's kind of, you know, causing a bit of a, you know, you look in the papers every, every day and you just sort of close them again. Basically, it's it's depressing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it does add. I mean, what I and this is wait, wait a minute, the master of the terrible pun. That's why I objected to the Scottish government and others bottling it on uh, with Martin Geisler and, and not appearing. And further to that, uh, we we actually spoke with her and did, it. I think, a tremendously interesting uh, podcast extra, which cheered me up no end, with a former BBC man, Ken McDonald, Leslie. 
Indeed, uh, and um, Ken, during the course of our of our interview, Ken reminded me that actually he was standing there when I joined the BBC in 1985 as the mm. first ever trainee in a newsroom full of guys. I think there was no there was no women um, who ranged from an ex builder Kenny McIntyre through to an accountants, and you know nobody had very few people even had university degrees, and they were some of the best reporters. That group of guys were tremendous reporters. Uh, Ken remembered me walking in and thinking to himself, thank God I'm not the youngest person in here anymore. <laughs> so that's how long we've known each other. Cut to where we are now. Ken is now part of the uh, of the, the little brigade um, of the Time for Scotland organising group, the ones that organised the um, Supreme Court Verdict Day rally and the recent Brexit Day. Here's how to get very cold for two hours and support Scottish independence event um, <laughs> from which he got a terrible cold. But anyway, the point of all of this being that um, at long last, because he left the BBC in 2020, Ken is able to speak quite openly about how the corporation works, thinks and tackles Scotland. And uh, this was just one of his more choice observations. The BBC Scotland didn't get it right because you can see that from the way that the audience responded afterwards and that the successive surveys of public opinion have suggested that we, we our credibility took a big nosedive after that second referendum. And it, there was a recognition that the BBC had done something wrong and had not had a campaign, as they say, the way that, say, STV had. Um, but there seemed to be less of a recognition as to what to do about it. There was a huge technical debrief after referendum night. You know, why did this microphone not work? Why did that satellite link work well or, or otherwise? All that sort of thing. We never had an editorial debrief, not, not at the level of the of, of the ground troops. So, so nobody could say, well, what do we get right? What do we get wrong? So anyway, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot more where that came from. And, and actually, Ken was full enough to say that we hadn't tackled the half of what he planned to say. Mm. So we'll need to bring him back for part two. Yes, uh, yes, this yes. will this will finally work its way through to everybody. But this is just these extras are just a way to say a massive thank you to everybody yes. who's a subscriber. So you'll understand wider community that um, these guys have first dibs. And I think it's out already, is it, Pat? Yes, it is. It, it, yes, it was out. Nice one. Yes, uh, I'm not quick. I'm not good, but I'm quick. That was the, <laughs> that was the, that, that, that's the same idea. But, but the, the thing, the thing about it is, is that to, to, to return just to the whole thing, the, 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 this is the problem with devolution that we again we saw the minimum alcohol pricing with these multi levels, where uh, the, the people who oppose the minimum alcohol pricing were able to take this through uh, initially at Holyrood, then Westminster, then finally to Europe. We're using these multi layers of devolved power in order to to try and stop it, which it, which has had no impact whatsoever on jobs or or company profits at all. But it has it has re uh, reduced the the alcohol, alcohol consumption in Scotland. But it, it does bring us back to that key point, Leslie, that that is it risen again this week of how do we actually achieve independence? And uh, a here was set coursing. Uh, where we've got the Scott, uh, the SNSP special conference in March was going to talk about should we have a de facto referendum Holyrood, which Anders Brenda McNeil has, has come solidly behind, or should we have a de facto referendum at the next Westminster election? And in comes Stuart MacDonald, supported by Alex Neal, who says, no, 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 no. What we're going to do is we shouldn't go for a de facto referendum at all. I throw the ball to you because you came back with a very trenchant response to this. 
Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, what I was kind of observing, uh, really, was that um, it's all very well for Stuart. And I've got to say, Stuart came back, actually, as a wee message and just said, um, I liked your column, exclamation mark. So, right. um, so uh, basically, Stuart, if Stuart's arguing, he, you know, that it, that it's it's unlikely that the independent supporting parties will win the necessary 50.1 percent of the yeah. vote, you know, in any sort of constellation of, of de facto referendum. OK, fine. Um what he's arguing instead is that, you know, we need to get more organised and we need to get support for independence up to 60 percent. Now, that's all very well. But yes. in, in what way is that likely to happen, given the current track record on campaigning by the SNP? And this is really plays to the heart of the whole problem, because whether you're you're going to get to 60, of course, everybody would like to get to 60 percent. And I know there'll be some people say, don't even mention that figure because it's a hostage to fortune. Legitimately, all you need is 50.1 percent and whatever. But, you know, realistically, we've got to keep this ball running. So, OK, it's true. You get home and dry with 50.1 percent. You then have nation building issues for the first. Oh, decades of your new country. So clearly you want as much as you can to get the ball rolling and bear in mind too that nothing we can do now thanks to the supreme court's ruling um will actually in itself make us legitimately independent uh, we still need to be essentially persuading westminster or just declaring udi either way the international community wants to see that this looks like a for keeps mm -hmm. kind of verdict so you know of course you don't need to have that but say let's say you're looking to try and get 60 percent you've got the same problem whichever way you go here um, which is how is the SNP going to set the heather alight? And yeah. basically, I am a little bit tired of sort of hearing people <clears throat> uh, talk. I mean, actually, also, Stuart was on Good Morning Scotland and talked of, of a miasma of impatience. Yeah. I had to look up miasma, actually, because I sort of thought I knew what it was. But it's basically a horrible farty smell. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, which is kind of portraying um, independence campaigners as slightly pungent on, wild men and yeah, women of Wonka, yeah, yeah. you know, who just are <laughs> determined to storm the barricades with this kind of gutsy Highland charge that, you know, has often ended in failure. Yes. And that, what annoyed me about that is that that's the same sort of contemptuous characterization of energy in the Yes movement made by people who oppose independence altogether. Yeah. So, you know, what people, what I was trying to sort of gently, but perhaps not very gently suggest to Stuart, is that what impatient miasma covered yesers have been doing is surveying the SNP and finding it fairly wanting on the following grounds. One, the SNP's ability to make common cause with other parties and yes groups is zero. The SNP's ability to excite people about independence is also virtually zero. Um, it's, its track record campaigning outside an election campaign is not great. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, I sort of made a bit of an analogy that, um, you know, so people, of course, will talk about getting polls to, you know, around or over 60 percent. But how the heck does anybody think we're going to get there? And it's OK for MPs to talk about civic assemblies. They haven't started campaigns. They haven't backed TV ads. They haven't bought cross party activity. They won't promote let alone embrace joint strategies. It's now beginning to sound like Gordon Brown's nearest possible to federalism. It's all yes. good sounding ideas that never get delivered. And that's why many ordinary punters favour the de facto referendum plan, because mm -hmm. they see one thing that the SNP is good at 
and that is winning elections. Yes. So the thing for that I was trying to say to 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 Stuart is that the idea of having some sort of renewed campaign, um, which actually buffers fairly quickly into the endless talk of summer campaigns of act- action, which also never yes. happen, um, is just there's no track record of the SNP doing campaigning at all well, and particularly not outside an election campaign. So I, I kind of concluded that. Um, you know, listening to, to kind of Stuart advocating the idea of of uh, active, vigorous campaigning is like watching a dog fearing postie buy tickets for crafts. Now, that might have been a bit unkind, <laughs> but it's kind of like, where's the evidence that this is anything? You know, this idea of vigorous campaigning, that is what we are not having at the moment. So, you know, that there may it may be fraught with problems having a de facto referendum. I mean, it is. It's not even it may. Yes. It is totally because it's not what we should be doing. But, you know, I think people have got to the stage now that, you know, they, they look at this and think, well, you know, what is the most likely way to get some sort of action? And it is an adjunct of what the SNP will do anyway, which is swing into action when there's an election and hopefully get something on the front of it that is wholeheartedly backed. And I noticed that um, Ivan McKee had come up with a line, a couple of the business, sorry, I've probably got a better title than this, but it's actually business secretary in the Scottish government, um, is is he's he's arguing that there should be yes branding either as one united yes campaign mm-hmm. candidates or as yes SNP yes Greens whatever mm-hmm. that's all fraught with problems too you know I mean if you think about it for a minute how and the, all the problem how you would get <laughs> Alba and the SNP and Greens all standing on one ticket and this is not to allocate blame but simply every I get press releases from Alba all the time. And, you know, Alex Salmond is absolutely getting torn into everything that Nicola is suggesting mm-hmm. and pretty much calling on her to resign. So there's not, you know, Alba is trying to put some clear blue water between itself and the SNP. And that's just not going to lend itself to those guys ever managing to agree which seat should have what candidate in it. So, you know, that. Uh, for Ivan to come out and suggest that, though, he is an existing minister, uh, you know, so mm. I think that suggests that there is all sorts of thinking going on at the moment within the SNP about how to square this circle. And yet for the punters who are stuck outside it, who have no say in this. So, you know, the only say any of us have that are not in the SNP is just what you can pitch up in, you know, print is just um that if anybody thinks you can you can persuade folk that you are going to mount some vigorous campaign that has nothing to do with an election, pull the other one. Yeah, you, you I mean, are actually th- tossing it into the long grass. Just be honest. Yeah, I mean because it, it all goes it boils down to to Stuart Turner saying geese the section thirty, please. You know, because I use, I mean, I'm perfectly frank about it. I mean, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone in this. Every single Westminster election for me is a de facto referendum. Because unless there is a minority Labour government which is, says it's going to work with the SNP in order to get progressive policies through at Westminster and secure a second independence referendum, the SNP, no matter how many MPs they have, have actually no impact at all whatsoever on what goes on at Westminster, other than to stand up and make a clear case either 
on the floor of the House or in committee about specific issues and be articulate and intelligent and ask all the right questions, but effectively has no impact whatsoever. So every every Westminster election for me is a de facto referendum. And I mean, it's the, he even condemns himself at his own mouth, I mean, because he says that it's the fifth parliamentary election at Westminster or Holyrood with a commitment. Yeah. Does that not tell you something? Because he, he seems to think that somehow that even if we got a majority of 50 plus one, there would there would be the, the UK government would not agree to uh, us becoming an independent country. There would be and the, the EU and NATO and our international allies would be disquieted by this and might not give us international recognition, but seems to somehow think that that gaining a, a majority of SNP MPs is somehow going to make Labour, if they get into power, or the Tories, if they retain it, give us a Section 30 order. I think it's cloud cuckoo land. I genuinely do. And I'm with you. I don't think using this as a de facto, using the de facto referendum uh, as a, in the general election is ideal or at Holyrood either. But it is the only way that we can actually signal that there is something going on and something I believe that we can rally around, but it does require what you said, the SNP, to work with others. I like the Gavin McKee idea, but I, I kind of assumed it would be you would have SNP, Green and Alaba all standing in the same constituency, but all branded yes. And in that way, that yeah, would that's be one of That's his other option. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I, I did actually, now that I'm reading my column, I did indeed <laughs> call for some sort of, you know, joint action between all the parties, because despite the fact that it seems almost impossible to expect the SNP and ALBA to sink the, you know, their differences, um, the thing that the voter needs to see is something extraordinary. Yeah. And that would be extraordinary. Yeah. Now, we're at that level. We're at the level of needing to see what you can't believe. You know, if, if people, if it's all going to be business as usual and you're just going to end up with a long string of things that look like they've not been just that well dealt with. And, you know, the deposit return scheme comes obviously on top of the blinking yeah. ferries, you know, mm-hmm. problems with the NHS that do exist. The You know, the National Care Service, which we haven't talked about, that's another one that people feel mm-hmm. within. I've had a very articulate argument sent to me that I hope the National is going to publish from a social worker ex-social worker, because she can now speak, who's really worried about the proposals for the National Care Service. There's there's quite a lot of stuff just sitting, you know, the the, the kind of problems with the, the, the contracts, uh, the essentially underselling of the contracts for Scottish Wind. Um, you know, you could yeah. begin to just think, this is not, you know, this is not great. So the thing is, although these things logically don't define whether or not independence <laughs> will work, no. um, Nonetheless, it's it's only natural to think that the party that supports it needs to put in a shift for yeah. folk to basically have belief. And if you're not going to do it, you know, you'd like to think you do it within the policy framework. Some somewhere along the line, there needs to be a bit of an effort to highlight the bits of policy that are actually working extremely well. But the other thing is at that sort of level that no one ever believes they'll see happening is some kind of rapprochement that suggests that independence is bigger than your pasts. Yes. Bigger than egos, um, even even bigger than really big points of principle. And so that's where I was heading with it. Ivan has said very much the same thing, but perhaps on a sort of more practical note has got that idea that uh, there has to be something that says yes uh, as a you know preface to each of the parties that would be standing to try to make 
in fact, in response to your very point, to make some difference from every other blinking election there's been. Because, mm-hmm. you know, unless something different happens, if everyone says, oh, I, and by the way, we're regarding this as a referendum on independence. Right. So here's our policy on energy. Here's our policy on whatever, you know, and actually it'll be the same as every other general election. Yes. So it has to be different. And I think his case was the difference would be everybody, you know, perhaps having a joint um statement that could be signed up to by all the yes parties, which then stand their individual, um, you know, members. But still, there's that. So that's one part of all of this. Right. Um, the other part, however, is something raised today by John Curtis and yeah. covered in the National, which is, in fact, weirdly, um, the very starting point of the book that I'm writing at the moment, oh. <laughs> Um which is to say that all this concentration on process is actually losing the independence debate because it is suggesting that overcoming a series of problems is the independence debate, or as in it is the case for independence. And we haven't even started this. A list of problems is not a case for something. And what uh, what he is, John Curtis is saying is um, that that nobody in the in the midst of all this firefighting and ending up you know having massive com, you know arguments about about what kind of de facto thing you want to have happen or not this is still just about the method of getting a vote through it's not the case for independence it's not exciting it's not enlivening it's not it, you know it's not setting out any of the stuff that is the reason that it's not the vision no. And so you don't get more than a couple of goes when you're on air. And I know, by gum, this is difficult because the first thing that you're confronted with are the problems. Yes. I mean, this is part of what we were talking about with Ken, you know, that the method of questioning, which will seem quite fair, is that you just barrack away about the problems to do with things. What Ken was conceded, absolutely observing that the BBC did in the referendum was they never examined the problems of the union. So there's two things that don't happen. While we're on the back foot having endless arguments about, you know, the small details of how we'll do something differently in this referendum, we are not um, focusing on the problems of the union, but we are mostly not making the positive case for independence. And I totally agree with that. I mean, the the bit I think I just tweeted something which was kind of like it was astonishing reading this article and thinking this is just exactly the very point this whole book is trying to mm-hmm. make. Um Practically the opening line of it is um, Scotland is trying to decide on the merits of moving home, but we debate the probable cost of the removals van instead. <laughs> and that's it. Yes. You know, so we so actually this book is cheerfully not discussing uh, to any great extent currency borders, you know, all of those things, because they are the things that become problems if you decide to move home. But we haven't even had the conversation about whether we want to move home or not. We keep looking at the problems. So, um, yeah, so that just that will be called Thrive, the freedom to flourish. And um, it will, God damn it, size be finished in a couple of weeks. (laughs) And it will if it kills me and it very possibly will um, come out in April. But still, I think John Curtis's observation is absolutely right. That the thing that the yes movement needs to do above all in order to win independence is make the case for independence, which is warning everyone what all of this talk of methodology does not do. Yeah, because what what we're effectively doing is fighting on the terrain that the opponents of independence want us to fight on, which is the process. 
and not the outcome. And I mean, and that's that's all I'm interested in is 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 the destination. But you've, as you say, you've got to decide the kind of house you want, how many bedrooms you want to have, fully fit the kitchen, etc. That's what that's what you're going for. And then along comes the bit where which I'm currently involved in, which is cleaning out the loft and booking people to do things, getting home reports done, Denny Stark me on home reports, and getting all that done. But that's the problem you overcome when you've decided you're going to move. Exactly. And there's nothing in this world would make you have to look at home reports, yada, 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 unless there was something that made you, had made you decide that you needed to move home. Yeah. And this that's the point, because people don't make these decisions lightly. Um, you know, but that's the core decision. If you're sitting just to continue the parallel, you know, if you're sitting in what with climate change may prove to be a floodplain, a lot of you may just you don't want to move the kids from school. You don't want to have to upset everything. You've got all your arrangements, tickety boo. You know where the bus stop is. You, you've got your return <laughs> yeah. retail bottle deposit people just beside you and everything. Of course, you don't want to bloom and move. It disrupts everything. But you're looking the future in the face. You're intelligent enough to be able to roll the story forward. And you know that sitting where you are now ain't going to be such a good idea or at its most pragmatic. You're having a burn. You know, you need space. You need more space. So you, you, you engage with all the blooming complexity of changing something because you understand very well the case for movement. So the thing is, you ask, all we do now is we have surveys asking people, how much do you want to engage with people about, you know, removal processes? How mm-hmm. much would you like to get involved in, you know, all the things that you've just run through that you need to go through? And people go, Ooh, not very much, really. And everyone goes, God, nobody wants independence for crying in a bucket. You know, we the thing is, we've all fallen into it. Yes. So we need to sort of regroup, get out of this and start talking about the house move, you know, are you all right where you are? And then actually, I think that that question, again, begs a whole lot of other questions, which is, you know, how much people are just resigned to what they've got, how much that flows from low self-image, how mm-hmm. much some of that's connected to having been sold the wrong idea that Scotland itself is a pop, how much that comes all the way through our history to the idea that we're living in a barren, godforsaken land, which we're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot that goes into all of that thought about about movement, and those that's the terrain that we should be actually involved with. Um, so I quite appreciate that this question of tactics gets everybody extremely hot and bothered. But what I see now, having been steeped in this stuff for blinking months, is how little we actually talk about the, you know, the big stuff of what kind of country we could create and what are the almost emotional impediments to believing that we are the country that can do it. Yeah, but, but I'm going to ask a question. Do, do you see the SNP in its current form? actually uh, moving towards that kind of narrative or have they themselves become completely caught up as, as as everyone has in the issues in the process is there is there any hope that the SNP will grasp this and actually start to make the big case for what it could be like or could the 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 the, the de facto referendum and the next general election or at Holyrood be that vehicle Well, I think it's got to be that vehicle because, as I said before, I think the SNP only, I mean, 
a political party is a machine for mm. winning elections. Yeah. It's not an ideas factory. So uh, it's not a campaigning body. It's just not. So the, the best way that you get something is a byproduct of what a party does well. And it's only in business to get elected. So that's where it seems to me, yeah. if you're talking about something to do with the SNP, that's your best hope. Thinking more about it, it does strike me that the SNP can say whatever they want about the future of Scotland. It's still going to be taken with a large pinch of salt somehow by, you know, anybody who yeah. just thinks, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Yes. Which is a difficulty that applied to everything, especially with the level of scepticism and outright attack there is from papers which are actually owned mm. by uh, interests not in this country, which will have whatever political outlooks they've got. Uh, so it strikes me that it does. It probably does take a separate um, other organisation to yeah. do that, actually. Um, and a lot of what Believe in Scotland has done has been trying to do some of that kind of campaigning work. And yet it is not the official yes movement. There might be something in there that needs to get resolved to give it the purchase that's needed uh, to move forward. Uh, that's another big discussion because it's not essentially a very democratic organisation. It's not you know, directly a membership organisation. But those gr groups that set up to be that way find themselves very bogged down by the business of simply trying to administer things to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, potentially of members. So um, I don't know. I mean, I'm saying the SNP hasn't made that case. Um, it, it, When it comes to elections, that's its moment for totally yeah. changing the tilt of its offer. Um, and that's why I still think on balance, given where we are and given that Nicola has basically, you know, wedded herself to something yes. which if she rose back on it will be fucking absolutely will you yeah. know will look like a big big back backward step um that's why i think probably something has to happen that is different yeah i mean it's uh yeah just just reflecting back as as we move on to uh, leslie was sitting there yesterday uh very quietly uh in the in the, the skype call when we were about uh, we're about to do the piece with with ken Mc mcdonald and leslie says i that's you lads talking about the football again i meant yes but but your recent article in the herald uh about uh scandinavian perceptions of scotland and scottish invisibility <laughs> does actually have at the core football does it not god I trust you to look at it that way well uh, of course Mr. Joyce. Yes. um yeah, well, it was a it was a comment. It was a strange thing, actually, because it was a piece, a little piece that was in the Scotsman that was uh, uh, an, apparently a, a survey that had been done by YouGov, which um, suggested that the Scandinavians that they'd polled, which turned looked like in the end it was Danes and Swedes, um, that they believe they've got more in common with England and the whole UK than Scotland. Uh, it's strange that this poll, which was conducted last June, took eight months to surface in a paper, but whatever. Mm. And I couldn't find any trace of it on the YouGov site, but I may not be the smartest pencil in the box. But <laughs> the outcome was that 58% uh, of Danes uh, think Scotland is similar to their own country, but they think 62% of them think England is similar. Um, and the same was true. You're just more, just slightly yeah. more. And really what, what that kind of um, I think what that was sort of supposed to do somehow there was also a survey presumably with a different set of people because it related to Scots which found that SNP voters were more likely to think that Scotland's got stuff in common with the Nordic nations than England whilst unionist voters felt precisely the other way around well blow me sure, you know yeah. 
So I think the combination of these polls, which are is an odd thing completely, um, really in terms of polling, but still, um, is presumed to I, to prove that the sort of love affair between independent supporters and the Nordic nations is a kind of forlorn, self-deluding mm. one-way street. Yeah. As in, we rate them, they don't rate us. In fact, as the newspaper did sort of concede, they don't even see us. Um, the, the, the report said the discrepancy in Scandinavian attitudes may be due to Scotland being more unknown, not because they see the country as dissimilar. Now, that's the size of it. Yes, because my, you know, time jumping around the Nordic countries and as director of Nordic Horizons, uh, chairing and helping organise more than 68 events with experts from the Nordic countries in Scotland, is that Scotland is virtually invisible. And that lack of identity is down to one thing. It's being part of the UK. People have have more conception all the time about Ireland. And this is where the multiple references to football came in. Um, I was recalling on on one occasion when I was in Iceland with a bunch of people. Our plane had back to Scotland been delayed. Um, The taxi driver taking us to the airport heard about the delay. And because one of our number had extremely red hair, which he took to mean she was Irish, Mm-hmm. Um, he he offered to take us on a free tour of the Rakanis Peninsula, upon which the uh, airport is situated. This being the place that's got new volcanic eruptions. On, I mean, it's some blooming place, right? Um, for free, right? Just because mm. she was Irish. Now, none of us, you know, we, we were we initially tried to protest that we were actually all Scots until somebody realised that wasn't the story that he wanted to hear. Yes. <laughs> um, and actually, the reason for that is that the about 40 percent of the Icelanders DNA on the mm-hmm. matrilineal side is Celtic. And that's the result of the Viking raiders that came originally from Norway because Iceland was uninhabited until the third set of um, d- discoveries in the 900s. Those Viking raiders came down to all the nearby islands, all the Celtic islands of Ireland, the Isle of Man, the Western Isles and the Northern Isles of Scotland and abducted women and took them back to Iceland to start their settlements. Now, the average Icelander is as likely to be descended from someone from a Scottish island as from Ireland. But that's not the story that they actually believe or want to hear, because to come from a Scottish island is to be invisible. They admire the Irish because they're like them, because they fought for their independence and they've got it. They're a they're a recognisable thing with a clear story and, and a tilt. The Scots, they're mm. just not sure. They're not quite sure kind of who we are, what we're about. So they delete that from their story. And I mean, equally, uh, two pals in Norway, one of my best friends, Christian, uh, lives in Hammerfest, is a fucking mad Liverpool FC supporter. Um, and you could, you know, he can take you through the streets of Liverpool in dialogue. You know what I mean? He's been mm-hmm. there so many times. It is the holy grail of the entire universe for him, as only you, a football supporter, would understand. And, you know, he's been to Edinburgh. He's come over with Ingerlisa, his wife, who's my 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 big pal, um, a couple of times because she's very involved in tidal energy. And we've had great times here. I mean, they've really enjoyed it. But nothing will supplant that football yep. connection you know and then nick brandle lovely guy norwegian academic if you've ever watched the norway film in fact if you've ever mm-hmm. watched the norway film you'll have noticed his accent in english because it's broad liverpudlian he's a total <laughs> norwegian 
but he's a massive Everton supporter. So, I mean, I think in the film, we actually had to say that despite his accent, Nick actually is Norwegian <laughs> because he doesn't even sound Norwegian. He's so very strongly Scouse sounding. And the thing is, all of these things, uh, you know, when you look at what familiarity is what yes. drives ideas of similarity. You know, you, if you're familiar with a place, you become you you just love it, basically, that you're willing to overlook many things. You don't ask in detail about its welfare state issues, its bedroom tax, its many other things. You just see that there are people there that you think, um, you know, are, are at the centre of your identity in footballing terms. And that's enough. And yes. with a big league that's promoted the way that the English league is in the Scandinavian countries, particularly, that is just going to give England a prominence that no other country actually is going to get. You could ask any other country about similarities and England would actually top the lot simply because of the football. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 it is remarkable. I mean, I mean, I I I go back to it that when when Scottish teams uh, were doing very well in Europe in in the eighties, you know, there there was that the the going over to the Scandinavian countries, importing Scandinavian players, etc. There there was a was a perception of us at that point. And never underestimate Leslie, though, as you've said before, the power of culture and the story we've got to sell to if we can only convince ourselves we have a positive story to sell culturally in terms of our art our music our literature maybe not so much the football these days but in all sorts of other areas but then yes and that's absolutely true and the thing is culturally i mean i'm not there is a kind of story to sell if you like but i mean in many ways it's just what what actually is that works in the end yeah and what is the case is that, I mean, I know in, in, in a lot of the northern parts of Norway, um, there are loads of, of uh, Scottish musicians there. Celtic Connections has just ended. There were mm -hmm. loads of Scandinavian musicians there. You know, they, there is one beautiful north when it comes to music and yeah. particularly music. And that has been quietly going on, knitted together behind the scenes by all sorts of tremendous people. Um, who don't get a forward, a front grounding in much because, you know, folk music or traditional music is still seen as some sort of dozy clique, which is utter nonsense. Yeah. And no other of our neighbours looks at that way. Uh, so we are we're totally up there. I mean, musically, we are absolutely dancing, you know, in terms of the mm -hmm. standards and vibrancy and connectedness and generosity in terms of the kind of different cultures that get included in something like Celtic Connections, we're doing totally well. So if you're involved in that world, you will know about Scotland. Um, that still doesn't come out in the general, you know, thoughts about things. And I, I actually wouldn't worry about this too much. I, I mean, if I worried about this, I simply wouldn't have done myself the last 12 mm -hmm. years of work on the Nordics because I mean, my mother, uh, my mother's family sort of originally came from Orkney and she's very minded around the traditions of Orkney, Shetland and particularly the Shetland bus during the Second World War. Yeah. Because she knew people who were on the boats that went and, and supported the Norwegian resistance. 
we went with mum uh, 20, 20 years ago, maybe 25 uh, to, 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 to Norway to just actually try and find members of her extended family. She was so determined that she was actually mm-hmm. Norwegian, of course, found none. Um, and also found no traces of any record of the Norway of the Shetland bus movement oh. in the little museums that are scattered around the place, which wounded all of us to the core. I can tell you now, maybe we were just unlucky, but, you know, I have never in all the trips I've made really seen a big acknowledgement of that kind of role. Um, on the other hand, what I was told quite regularly by people was that the Norwegian royal family during the Second World War actually were housed, you know, given refuge in London. And mm. that mattered to people because the the the, fa- the royal family broadcast regularly to everyone in the resistance in Norway and everyone hiding from the Nazi occupation. And that kept people going. It was a huge morale booster uh, so that, you know, the location of the, the, the family was a very big deal. And it's it's mentioned still to me without, you know, prompting as something that makes people feel quite fond of England. It's also a big city. So if you're going to go somewhere, and yeah. of course, English is what all the Scandinavians have learned as practically their first language. It's not. But, you know, the, the levels of fluency are uncanny. London sits as the kind of, you know, mother load of all of that. Um, so there's loads of ways and even Monty Python. I mean, John Cleese oh, didn't yeah. go around Austria to do his divorce tour, you know, all those years ago when he was raising money for his divorce. He just went straight to Norway, cleaned up and came back able to get divorced properly <laughs> because he made so much money. The guy that took me round the, the very north of Norway um, for seven days, uh, who was an, a, an advisor to the foreign minister of the time, um, you know, my thank you to him was to give him a box set of Monty Python and Father Ted. Uh, now, there's you see, there's the other mm, um, argument, yeah. because the sense of humor, the Monty Python sense of humor is totally, totally it. I then gave him a box set of the, the thick of it and he, he, he didn't watch it oh. because he said it was absolutely too venal. Right. <laughs> so you can okay. read a lot into uh, all yeah. of this or a little. But the point is that um, there's lots of reasons why somewhere that has been a regional part of a larger whole doesn't get recognition in its own right. Why should it? Because if you think about it, if you were living in any of the Nordic countries, do you know in detail the difference between all the lender of Germany? Exactly. You know, which has which each of which has have more budgetary power than Scotland. And okay, we've got Outlander, J.K. Rowling, Hogwarts Expresses, you know, history, whiskey, bloody blah on our side that makes us think that we are, you know, some destination in our own mm-hmm. right. But that's not kind of enough to feel, you know, to feel very strongly with if you haven't actually visited. Uh, and still the reason people will visit um, is to get somewhere that, that that kind of stirs them, you know, and what stirs people, a lot of guys, is football. <laughs> So that that was going to that was going to be my ender, which is so if we really want the Scandinavians to sit up and take notice of us, we've got to get better at the football. Well, so or that, just don't worry about it. You know, I mean, like now uh, but, I don't worry about it. I understand yeah. why 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 people will you know in most of these countries why people have a very strong fondness for for English culture, Britain. They haven't updated it. 
you know, very mm-hmm. largely since Monty Python. Um, you know, they don't know the ins and outs of the difficulties that we've been working through. Those of them that are interested in EU membership certainly noticed the Brexit vote, but that still isn't familiarity. They haven't been here. And we need to, you know, we need reasons to come here. And the reasons are embassies, ambassadors, joint working, mm-hmm. um, absolutely new policies for how to manage the North Atlantic, joint fishery agreements with Norway, joint energy agreements with Iceland, linking up their geothermal to our more intermittent wind energies. We need all these things that knit us into the fabric of the Scandinavian nations. And that's what creates familiarity, jobs, exchanges, friendships, marriages, all the things that are required to put somewhere on the map. I don't care about badging, trying to inch us up a little bit by trying to push some line here or there. It's independence that will make the difference. It made it to Estonia, which you mentioned earlier, utterly invisible as a corner, a as forgotten corner of the Soviet empire until you know, independence, the brave decisions they took. And 30 years on, yeah, Estonia is pretty visible because it is probably the fastest growing economy in the EU. It's certainly its digital leader. So, you know, just by the way, if you're not going to boot the parish, the film that Charlie and I made about Estonia um, is having its Scottish debut in the uh, Mm. DCA on Independence Day for Estonia, which is the 24th of February. And there are still tickets available and there will be a QA and a afterwards. (laughs) Don't mention it. (laughs) Yeah. And on that shameless, shameless piece of self-publicity, I'm going to cut that bit out. No, so just do it. No, okay, oh, that shameless oh. bit of self-publication. I can't say it. <laughs> I know because you feel bad about the fact that you know I'm having to push my own sort of events yeah. here. I think right. that's what you feel. Right. On, on, oh yes. Thank you very much for giving me that. Oh, Miss Riddick, we'll see you next week, chumps. <laughs> <laughs>